You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a date, March 15th. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, partner out of the Sacramento office in litigation and student matters. And I'm very lucky to be joined today by two fellow Sacramento office partners and the co-practice group leaders of Lozano Smith's Labor and Employment Practice Group. One is Michelle Cannon. Good afternoon, Ms. Cannon. Good afternoon. And number two is Gabby Flowers. Hello, Gabby. Hi, Sloan. Their bios are long and extensive, especially Ms. Cannon's, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Well, Gabby, you need to reformat your bio on the webpage. I'm telling you, more bullet point lists. I mean, I am older, so. Well, regardless, March 15th in the education law and labor context, a really important date for a whole bunch of reasons. So, Michelle, why don't you start us off when we're talking about the non-reelection of probationary employees? Yeah, so one of the most important March 15th dates is that's the deadline to non-reelect second-year probationary certificated employees. So it applies not just to teachers, but all certificated employees. And we like to focus on second-year probationary teachers, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But at any rate, if um, they are required to be non-reelected by March 15th, then that means they need the notice to have actually received it by that date. Um, effective at the end of the year so that they don't become permanent the following year of their third year. And we work with our clients to make sure that the board takes action that's necessary in advance of that date. Um, Generally, it's action in closed session to uh, non-reelect a probationary employee. That could be done via a resolution or some districts just do it through an action item. Either one is acceptable. Um, Then they report out that action and then all this needs to happen before the notice goes out by that deadline is the important part. So so we, notice is due by the 15th, and so this action is usually occurring sometime between February and early March. Yeah, and I, I would say, and Gabby, jump in if you disagree, usually it's in early March. For districts that only have one board meeting a month, that can get tricky depending on when their board meeting is. So, so uh, if they only have one meeting a month, sometimes they'll take action in February. They can also call a special meeting if they need to, but the important part is to make sure they take action uh, so that employees can be notified by March 15th. I assume that one of the themes that may come out of this as we go through the other March 15th deadlines is one, the need to sometimes be overly cautious and do these these things, even if ultimately there's gonna be a decision, say for some probationary employees that, that you are gonna stick around, but to make sure you hit the deadline, or is this one where, no, you know by this date what your plan is for probationary employees? Yeah, and I see, I see Gabby nodding her head. This is different than um, layoffs and some other things where okay. it's sort of like a you may be. These are, the, when the board takes action to non-reelect, they've taken action and it's That's basically it. final. Yeah, okay. and so, and then it's just the notice that goes out. Um, a couple of things to remember, these folks are non-reelected by March 15th, but they do work out the rest of their year. So they're entitled to finish their contract year. I also mentioned the first year probationaries. Mm-hmm. Some attorneys have different practices, but... The way the Ed Code is read in its section 44949 point, I'm sorry, 44929.21 is that this the rules apply to second year probationaries. So um, our position is that if you have a first year probationary teacher, you don't have to meet that March 15th deadline. You can non-reelect them anytime before the end of the school year. 
because it's their first probationary year. That makes sense. If you know folks, though, are going to be non-reelected, we still think it's better to do it before the March 15th. First, it gives the employees just more notice. Second, if they potentially have a claim that they should have actually been a second-year probationary instead of a first, it just takes care of that, too. So good practice is to do it by March 15th if you can, but you've got more leeway with those first-year teachers. Okay, so that's March 15th issue number one. What about the release or reassignment of administrators? How does that interact with March 15th? Yeah, so administrators, and folks will be used to the idea that administrators hold their position at the pleasure of the board or something like that. We hear that all the time. And what that really means is that administrators don't get tenure or permanency or have a right to their administrative position. They can be released any year or each year as long as they receive notice of their release from their administrative position by March 15th as well. For administrators, it's a little different, and it's Education Code Section 44951. And it basically says that you can release an administrator from their administrative position and transfer them to a classroom position if you give them notice by March 15th. So we call this a release and reassignment notice. Um, the same, same deadline applies. The administrators also need to get a copy of this in their hands by the deadline, um, at least saying that they're being released and reassigned. They can then be notified of what that reassignment is um, anytime before the end of the year. That doesn't have to happen in March. One other thing is that the code also provides that if they want a statement of reasons, they can request a statement of reasons from districts. And we work with our clients on, on what to include in those statement of reasons. And having done this for a lot of years, I've only had maybe a handful of administrators ever come back to the district and say, we want a, I want a statement of reasons. But that's not a big deal if they do. The other thing I wanted to mention on this is you may have, so the reassignment back to the classroom is uh, sort of a, along the lines of retreat rights like community college folks have, and um, sending people back to a classroom, even if they haven't ever worked in the classroom in that district. Um, if they obtain tenure while they're working in an administrative position, they could be sent back to a classroom position. If they are actually a probationary employee though, because they've worked for the district for less than two years, and you just want to cut them loose, we recommend you do this administrator release action and a non-reelect at the same time. The first option you talked about. Yeah, but, and I, again, I'd be interested if, if Gabby has a different practice. I think it's important to do the non-reelect, but also include the administrator release because that code section is so specific that for administrators, you have to give them this notice by March 15th. So I just do a combo notice for administrators that are going to be non-reelected. Yeah, that's what I do too. You do the same thing? Okay. Yeah. Uh, going to the, the notice real quick, because you've emphasized the need for them to have it in hand by March 15th. How are these usually getting transmitted? Is it personal delivery, or if you have enough time, certificated mail, certified mail? Um, what's the approach that we're usually sending those out by? Hand delivery is, is, our, is our general recommendation. Got it. Got it. Yep. Yeah, it's based on actual notice. So there's cases that say, if you can prove actual notice, um, you have to prove, be able to prove it. So what we recommend along those lines is personal service because the statute's silent. Got it, got it. Now, Gabby, what about the certificated layoff process and and the notices related there and coming back again to March 15th? Right, so if you're gonna lay off a certificated employee non-administrator, you have to give them notice by March 15th. If you don't give them notice, then they are deemed re-employed for the next school year for the entirety of the school year. A layoff is done due to budgetary constraints, loss of funds, declining enrollment, those types of things. It is not disciplinary in nature. 
Um, so again, the board needs to act before March 15th, and unlike non-reelections, layoff notices can be sent via certified mail, which is typically how they are sent. Employees have a right to a hearing to contest their layoff. Uh, for certificated employees, you can reduce particular kinds of services, which is what's most common, or you can do a layoff under a slightly different process, which is based just on declining ADA, which you basically never see because it gives you less flexibility. So once an employee is given their layoff notice, then they have seven days to request a hearing. And these hearings are done before administrative law judges out of the Office of Administrative Hearings. Um, and so this year, we're not anticipating a huge number of certificated layoffs, um, but be aware that if you need to do them, you need to do that, and they need to be sent the notice by March 15th. Now, certificated layoffs are completely, the process is completely defined by statute, and that's 44955 and 44949. And what the statute provides is that a more senior certificated employee can, who's identified for layoff can displace a more junior certificated employee if they have the qualifications to hold that position. We call these bumping rights. And so in order to satisfy the March 15th rule, you need to figure out if the people identified for layoff have rights to displace less senior teachers. Um, because if they can, then those less senior teachers get the March 15th notice. So you need to have all of that figured out on the front end um, and issue these March 15th layoff notices. If you don't have that all done by March 15th due to you know, schedules and all those things, you need to potentially issue more than one layoff notice for the same position to account for potential bumping rights with the understanding that you are gonna be rescinding one of those layoff notices depending on whether someone can bump or not. In a perfect world, Gabby, how is this playing out as far as the schedule? What am I as a district doing in February and March? And then play it out for me going into the future in terms of chronology if there are one or more teachers who wish to challenge their layoff. So, again, your layoff resolution identifies the positions that are going to be eliminated or reduced. That gets approved by the board ideally in late February, more likely early March. Then once that's approved, assuming it is approved, you have to figure out, okay, who's the least senior in the positions identified for layoff? You identify those people and then you figure out if they have displacement bumping rights um, or if there's any ties that need to be broken, people with the same seniority date and the same position being uh, eliminated. And so all of that, again, ideally would be done by March 15th because whether you're identified for layoff or you're someone who's been displaced by a more senior teacher, you have the same rights to a hearing. Um, and so March 15th comes, um, those notices have been sent, employees have seven days to request a hearing. Once they request a hearing, a completely different set of documents is sent to them called a statement of reduction in force. Once that's sent, they have five days to request to submit something called a notice of participation. They have to submit both a request for hearing and a notice of participation in order to get a hearing. If they only submit one, they have waived their right to a hearing. So once all those documents, once all those notices are um, received or the timeline has passed for them to submit them, then you see who's timely requested a hearing and then you, and usually this is when counsel really steps in, 
you schedule a hearing with the Office of Administrative Hearings. Depending on the size of the layoff, those hearings can be half a day up to weeks for, for large, very large layoffs, maybe up to maybe a week and a half for huge layoffs. But usually it's, I mean, usually they're one to three days, I would say. Um, and then the administrative law judge determines, usually what's challenged are, you know, whether there's sufficient cause to do the layoff, which districts are given a significant amount of deference on. Usually that's not the issue that's litigated. What is litigated is whether the layoff notice was timely sent, sent to the correct address, whether the employee's seniority date is accurate to determine um, whether they should have been laid off or someone else should have been laid off, um, and also whether the bumping rights were applied properly under the Ed Code. So really it's an audit of the district's layoff process and whether it complied with the statute. Once the hearing is finished, the administrative law judge has until May 7th to issue their proposed layoff decision. Once that decision is issued, the district has to basically either adopt in full, modify, or reject that layoff decision. And they have authority to, to change it if they want or completely reject it, but we generally advise don't change it unless, unless there's a material error of law or a material error of fact. Um, otherwise, we recommend just adopting it in full to avoid further litigation on the issue. Then that's not the end of the process. Then the last step is to send out final notice, layoff notices, to laid-off employees before May 15th. It's not on May 15th, it's before May 15th. And if that last step isn't done, those people have not been laid off. A lot of things to happen within a short period of time. Just a quick procedural question. So let's say there's, I'll pick a number, 15 folks are laid off. Uh, they all request a hearing. Hearing is set. Is there the ability for individual employees to request their own separate layoff hearing? Or as a matter of course, if there's anything being challenged as to the district's layoff, everything is adjudicated at once in one hearing before ALJ? Yeah, it's always done in one hearing before one ALJ. Individual issues as to individual employees will be raised by those employees uh, through their attorney or through, through themselves if they're unrepresented. So there's not separate hearings for separate employees. Okay, that's three labor and employment March 15th items. What about our classified layoff rules when it comes to March 15th? So before January 1st, 2022, um, the layoff process for classified employees was very simple. It was 60-day notice and no hearing. Then AB 438 was passed, which massively changed the classified layoff process to now match the certificated layoff process. So there's a little bit of uh, different grounds to lay off classified employees. There's some nuances that we'll talk about, but uh, generally speaking, it's the same process. By March 15th, you need to notify the employee that they are being laid off. If you don't do that, they are reemployed for the next year. One major difference is that the reason to lay off a classified employee is due to lack of work or lack of funds. Now, lack of funds does not mean inability to pay an employee's salary. Um, it's kind of broadly construed. So, for instance, if you're deficit spending, things like that, that would qualify for a lack of funds. Again, deference is given to the two districts on this idea um, as to the basis for layoff. 
Another difference here is that seniority is based on length of service, which is similar to teachers. The difference is for classified employees, is it's based on hours in paid status. That's the default. So you can negotiate date of hire if you have a union and that's something you, you want to do or you've done, but the default is it's based on hours in paid status and it only includes time spent in probationary periods and of course permanent uh, once you receive permanency. So once you get the March 15th, it's all the same process. So the employees have seven days to request a hearing. If they timely request a hearing, they get this packet called a statement of reduction of force. They have five days to submit a notice of participation. They have to submit both documents to get a hearing. Hearings are done by the Office of Administrative Hearings um, using an administrative law judge who has to issue their proposed decision by May 7th. Final layoff notices need to go out before May 15th. Now, another major difference here is that the concept of bumping, which is in the Ed Code for certificated employees, does not exist in the Ed Code for classified employees. However, um, a lot of districts with classified unions have negotiated bumping language. So you're gonna, we're going to be in a unique uh, layoff environment with these classified layoff hearings where an administrative law judge who is not used to interpreting a collective bargaining agreement is now going to be required to interpret Ed Code and also any sort of bumping um, rules that have been negotiated, which is a very unusual phenomenon and something we're going to just have to see how administrative law judges handle this. Um, because typically enforcement of a contract is done through the grievance process, not through a hearing before an administrative law judge like this under an Ed Code process. So we're just going to have to kind of see how that plays out. Um, another really big difference is that only permanent classified employees are entitled to a layoff hearing. However, the Ed Code has a special definition for permanency for classified employees as it applies to layoffs. So it includes anyone who's obviously permanent as of March 15th, but then includes anyone who will become permanent thereafter. And the language in the statute is very vague. We've interpreted that to mean if they will become permanent by June 30th of 2022 for this year. So employees that you may not think are permanent may actually be permanent for purposes of layoff. So that's one big thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind, AB 438 did not change the process to layoff employees who are being eliminated due to the expiration of specially funded programs. Now, we've been getting a lot of questions on this because a lot of districts have um, COVID-related money that they've used to hire additional staff. And some of this COVID money can be used over multiple years. And so while a district may not be using up all of that money this year, for example, they don't have enough money to employ as many folks using that money. And so they've asked, well, if the money is not expiring, can we still use this 60-day notice, which does not culminate in a layoff hearing? And the answer is the ed code on this is very, very narrow as to when you can use the 60-day notice process. In order to use it, the specially funded program must be expiring, and that is the reason for the layoff. 
If the, if the program is not expiring, you are free to still lay that person off. You just have to use the March 15th process that culminates in a hearing versus the 60-day notice process that does not culminate in a hearing. Can I, oh, oh, I have a question. Please. Well, uh, not a question, a point. Going back to the bumping, I think that's going to be the most interesting part of this new classified layoff scenario. I know I work with a lot of classified contracts that don't have any bumping in them. And so what that means is there's no bumping rights for those employees because it's not in the education code. And if their contract doesn't provide it, they just won't have bumping rights. But I feel like um, I've heard that a lot of classified employees don't understand that or necessarily agree with that. So I think that's an issue for districts just to be aware of, too. I don't know if you've you've heard about that as well. Right. And so one thing to keep in mind is the Ed Code says... How you figure out who gets laid off, it's hours in, so classified employees are laid off by classification. So it's hours in the class, the current class they're in, plus higher classifications. So what that means is it's whatever class the employee's in, and if they've ever been promoted and returned back to that position, you're going to add that promotional time. Otherwise, it's just going to be their hours in paid status in their current classification. It is not uncommon, in fact, it is very common for classified employees to have held multiple positions with the district um, over their years, right? They do a good job in one classification, they're promoted to another classification. As they continue promoting, typically they, can, they, well, they, they do retain permanency in the prior positions they held. And so when we talk about bumping, that's why a lot of employees think, well, I, have, I held this prior position, so I have rights to that position. And, you know, from an emotional standpoint, that makes sense. But unless it's in the contract, that's not necessarily true for layoff purposes. Uh, just a question on the bumping. I know we're getting close to wrapping up. But on, for CBAs in the classified context that do have bumping language, or is the norm for it to mirror and track what we would see in the certificated statute? Or are there just kind of a wide range of variations as to what's been negotiated into the classified CBA when it comes to the framework for bumping rights? So it's it's a little bit different, well, because the way uh, employees hold positions is different. For instance, for certificated, your assignment is dictated by your credential. You can only hold certain assignments if you have the proper credential for that assignment. Versus classified employees, um, there's going to be minimum qualifications, but generally the bumping language I've seen in multiple contracts is it pertains to prior positions held. So for instance, if someone's position's being eliminated and they've held a prior position, they can basically displace the least senior person in that prior position if they choose, if they want to. They're not, it's not an automatic thing, it's a choice. So they can either take the, it's sort of like a demotion, but it's a bump, to retain employment in lieu of being laid off. Now they still have re-employment rights to the classification that they're coming from, but the person that gets the layoff notice is the person they are displacing. Right. And in some contracts I've seen, it it has to be a complete match, so like an eight-hour position to another eight-hour position. I have seen one contract that didn't have that limitation. So you could displace someone with fewer hours, in which case both you and the bumpy would get a layoff notice. Your layoff notice would just be for two hours. One more question. All right, so the statute defining permanency for purposes of the right to a hearing in the classified context doesn't seem to me to make a whole bunch of sense, apart from expanding the class of folks who would otherwise 
be entitled to a hearing. Do we have any sense of the rationale there? Because it is counterintuitive. Because here you are at layoff time, and and permanency has not yet been a, a, obtained from a traditional sense until the end of the school year, the fiscal year. Yeah, I mean it's unclear why the legislature did this instead of simply saying probationary gets this right. Um, because different from certificated rehire rights for for classified employees was the same whether you were permanent or probationary. It was thirty nine months. Now it doesn't even address probationary employees at all. Um, so it's unclear. Again, I don't even know how many people would fall into a true permit or probationary classification under this new scheme. But arguably, those folks don't even, don't have any rights. Um, as a matter of best practice, we'd probably just follow the sixty day notice requirement. Gabby, Michelle, you two are brilliant, and why you are the practice group leaders of the Bazano Smiths Labor and Employment Practice Group. Thank you. Uh, we're trying to keep this short knowing that at uh, this time of year, there is little time for anybody to do anything. So uh, I think this will be a very useful reminder for, for our listeners of these four really significant labor and employment related March 15th deadlines and sets of activities. So thank you both for making time today out of your busy schedules to talk with me, even though Gabby's sick and tried to open a soda can while we're on a very sensitive mic. For our listeners, thank you again for joining uh, another Lozano Smith's podcast. Make sure that you go to our webpage at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links to this episode and others, as well as show notes and links to related resources. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tom. any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.